Welcome to One Does Not Simply, where three friends take on the Lord of the Rings and go on some unexpected journeys. I'm Wanda. I'm Navia. And I'm Ashani. This is episode 22, One Does Not Simply Shoot an Ent. As always, there will be spoilers for the entire Tolkienverse ahead, so let's get into it. It's the closest we've ever come to actually clapping at the same time, like on the audio. on the Zoom. Yeah. yeah, which means that one of us was like off sync. <laughs> it probably probably was you because your arm is all fucked up from getting that tattoo. Yeah. Hey, listeners, I got one half of my sick Lord of the Rings tattoo. That's what we're, we're going to talk about in the next fifty minutes. We. I think we said we were going to post a picture of it, right? But we'll post it when it's done. Yeah. When it's done, done, we absolutely should post a picture of it to the show Twitter. Nobody find me based on my arm. (laughs) Was there, um, were there any, like, were there any, like, interesting moments in, like, getting the tattoo? So, okay, so this um, tattoo shop used to be called Mordor, and there is a place in the Pacific Northwest where you can go stay at this Airbnb that, like, looks like a hobbit hole. And um, apparently this one couple once basically came and stayed in that Airbnb and then, like, walked all the way to this tattoo shop, which is not even remotely in the same place, just so they could say that they walked from the Shire to Mordor. (laughs) Wow. That's amazing. And then they got commemorative tattoos, obviously, but, like, that that level of dedication, I think, is even higher than forming an entire podcast based on this material. That's just silly. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I just like to think that they, like, thought it was this incredible idea that they came up with. They're like, guys, what if? Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine them trying? Did they do it, like, for the Susan G. Komen Foundation? <laughs> <laughs> I think they Yeah, just- I mean, it really depends on, like, where was this walk? Because... Depending on where they were, like, you might be walking through, like, a whole lot of nothing. Yeah, I mean, I think it took them, like, a month to do this. It doesn't actually take a month to do that walk, but I think they stopped a lot along the way and made it, like, a casual thing. Yeah. Were they they weird about it to everybody that they came across? (laughs) I don't know. I didn't meet this couple. I only heard the story. (laughs) (laughs) When they got there, they, like, threw a ring at the guy. Have you ever seen the, like, replicas of the one ring, and then sometimes people propose with them? That's what your brother was yeah. talking about doing, right? Oh, right, 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 yeah. I, I'd like to think this couple definitely did that. I used to look through the catalog that came with the extended edition DVDs and see the, like, replicas of the elven rings and kind of want one. Yeah, they used to be on those, like, in-flight magazines, too, and I would always want to buy, like, one of the swords. Yeah, you can buy it, like, yeah, there was, like, a certain point, I think, in, like, 2002, um, when you could buy, like, in one stroke while you're, like, 30,000 miles in the air, like a, like a table lamp shaped like an eagle with, like, an American (laughs) flag shade, and also the one ring. I just like to imagine that somebody's had, like, too many of those airplane cocktails, and they're just like, now is the time. Yeah. Yeah. Hashtag no regrets. 
All right, welcome back to our podcast. Um, we are covering today chapters eight and nine of the Two Towers, book one, book three of the Lord. How do we say this? Book three of the Lord of the Rings. I don't know. He got really confusing with this naming. Anyway, uh, in these chapters, uh, chapter eight, titled The Road to Isengard, is about the road to Isengard, turns out, um, in, in which our company, which includes uh, Gandalf, our trio of writers, and um, Theoden and some of his company, they basically go from Helm's Deep to Isengard um, on Gandalf's instructions to parlay with Saruman. And uh, along the way, they encounter some, some weird happenings, uh, like some mist that they don't recognize. Um, Gimli and Legolas plan their honeymoon to the caves. And uh, it's essentially a walking chapter, all things considered. Um, but we do learn something interesting uh, about the trees that ate the orcs. We are finally able to identify them. Um, or is that in the next chapter? I think that's the next chapter. I lied. We learn about that later. Uh, chapter nine, entitled Flotsam and Jetsam, is where our uh, trio is finally reunited with Merry and Pippin. And they basically have a huge party with a bunch of weed and a bunch of food. And they talk about basically what they've been doing this whole time while they were apart. And um, they also discover that the Ents have totally wrecked Isengard. And Saruman and Wormtongue are holed up in a tower together. Um, so I guess I want to start out by saying, I think we all felt that these chapters were kind of similar in the sense that they involved a lot of dialogue between our characters. And we also got a lot of exposition about things that had previously happened, um, explanations of things that had been mentioned before that we now understand more about. Um, but one of them, which was the second one, Flotsam and Jetsam, was much more successful at this dynamic than the first chapter. I, I want to start out by just asking both of you, why do you think that was when theoretically they should have been fairly similar? Yeah, especially when like the the dialogue in the second the second part of this reading was like way less actually like dialogue, right? It was basically just Mary telling a big long story. Yeah, it was a big info dump, essentially. But leading up to that, I think for me, the difference is that in chapter eight, what Tolkien does is something we've seen before from him, where we get a lot of like description of walking and then we get a really short, almost truncated exchange of like two to three sentences that are unclear in what they're trying to accomplish um, that don't ever seem to come to any sort of resolution or like honestly, for the most part, do much in terms of characterization because they're so short. It's just like, it almost feels like Tolkien wanted to put in some obligatory dialogue as though to remind us that there are characters doing these things. Um, and we saw that a lot in Fellowship, right? But by comparison, in Chapter 9, we get some dialogue that is there to build relationships between characters. We get Gimli giving... Mary and Pippin kind of a hard time for like worrying him and then them being like no no we'll make it up to you because we got not only food but we have alcohol and we have pipe weed right and so you get like this sense of character and fun. I got the sense um that so the in my opinion the best 
characterizations that we've seen so far dialogue wise have come from Legolas and Gimli's interaction with each other and mm-hmm. Merry and Pippin. And I almost get the sense that it's because Tolkien kind of feels more comfortable writing those characters. Like he almost knows who they are more. And so he worries less about exactly what they're saying. And he's he works a little harder on making it feel like it's coming from them. And so we get the sense that like, you know, um, that Merry and Pippin are these really playful hobbits who like really like to, you know, play some pranks and like they like mischief and they like fun and it comes through in the way that they talk right they like to banter and they like to joke with each other and almost in a similar way with Legolas and Gimli like they're very proud people and you get that sense but they're also very they're very gentle and they're willing to learn about each other and you get that sense through the way that they speak and with all the other characters dialogue I get the sense that Tolkien doesn't really know who this character is yet, and he's just using them to further the plot a little bit, but he doesn't have a voice for them created yet. You know, you're you're being very generous by saying all of the others. I really think that it's Aragorn um, that I feel that the most with, because even Theoden, I feel like I got a sense of who Theoden is from these chapters and from Helm's Deep. Like, here's this guy who recognizes his flaws and definitely is aware that he's a little fallible, but also retains enough, like, innate nobility and good humor to be, like, very pleasant when he meets the hobbits on the road to Isengard and, like, yeah, he's is really charming. Nice. Yeah, he's charming. And then Gandalf... He's like, I totally is- want to hear about the, uh, the origins of Pipeweed. Yes, right? Which is one of those things where I went, yeah, I can see how you would have been, like, a good diplomat and a good statesman back in the day, because I got that vibe. Um, Gandalf, as irritating as I find him, is at least consistent in being, uh, you know, I'm going to drop some mysterious statements and then peace out for several weeks and then tell you information that I've had this whole time, like, after it was relevant, which... Uh, we'll come back to that, I'm sure. But, like, at least we know that's Gandalf's thing, and he does it regularly. I don't know what Aragorn's thing is. Well, he's almost, like, notably absent from yeah. these chapters. I mean, we hear very little from him, which is bizarre since we're supposed to be getting set up for him to be one of the main characters of, of two of this series. I mean, he's... He's the king that's going to return, right? <laughs> like, why, why is it? It's, it just seems weird that how, he doesn't say anything. He has, a line, get, like, he has a line or two. Yeah, he get, we got like three, three, four lines from him, but none of them are very notable or important. And yeah, I think, Ashani, in your notes, you mentioned like really the only characterization of him we've seen so far is like random kingly posturing on occasion. <laughs> The, um, the the line of dialogue that I remember from him in this chapter, actually, it's I think it might be in Flotsam and Jetsam, is when he's sitting in the storeroom. So they all get like a bite to eat, right? After they've gotten to Isengard, Merry and Pippin give them pipeweed and give them beer and meat. <laughs> and Aragorn's sitting out, like looking at the ruination of Isengard, and he's got his cloak wrapped around him. So he's hiding like his kingly mail. And Pippin says, wow, the ranger's come back. And Aragorn says something like, well, the ranger never left. I am a man of Dunedin, and I'm a man of the north. And that those two, those two things are one in me. And I'm like, okay, 
He surfaces to talk about himself. I noticed that too. Yeah, it's interesting also that he says that, you know, those two things are one as if there's no conflict or tension between those two things. Like he's just fully comfortable in the fact that he's both these identities. When I think we've seen that that's objectively not true, right? right? He has been struggling with which one of these people he is. And I, it seemed weird to me that he would just be like, no, it's fine now. I'm both. <laughs> yeah, he reminded me of me when I'm like, I kind of want to talk to other people, but I only want to talk to them about me. <laughs> I think that's actually a part of his character that they preserve really well in the movies. Because he doesn't have a lot of conversations with other people where he's like, being a joker, right? Or like, doing any kind of bonding. He just kind of sits there being who he is. And they had to, they had to create in the movies, they had to create a person for like, like, like you were saying, I think before we were recording, you're like, in the books, he just kind of sits there. And in the movies, he sits there hotly. Kind of speaking of characters that are likable in some contexts and inherently unlikable in other contexts. Nice segue. <laughs> uh, Gandalf sucks in these chapters. <laughs> yeah, he sucks. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm going to retract any earlier statements about Gandalf being at all my favorite character or even on the list because what is this behavior? He's clearing the way for Eowyn to step in. <laughs> what is this behavior? So for context, um, Gandalf, especially in the first of these two chapters, basically... Um, he appears for a little bit. He's like, all right, we, we won the battle. Woohoo. Um, congratulations, everyone. He's like, all right, I'm off to Isengard. (laughs) And everyone's like, what, what are you talking about? You just showed up. Like what's happening? And finally, Theoden convinces him that he should go along. And at that point, Gandalf is like, okay, if you're coming, here's a bunch of information I probably should have told you anyway about where I was when, like, the whole battle was going on, why I wasn't there, what I was doing in the meantime. It turns out what he was doing was gathering a bunch of survivors up from all over Rohan and bringing them back. And also visiting Isengard, a key point, which is how he knows that it is safe to go there now. Yeah, Gandalf's trip was exclusively logistical management, and yet he did not feel like he could let anybody know when he left. Poor Theoden, when Gandalf left, he was like, Wormtongue left, and now Gandalf, who replaced him, has also left. (laughs) It's it's bonkers, and it's it's not that I expect him to say, here's, like, I'm going to be back at this X point, whatever. But like, if he had just been like, I'm going to go gather up some more army and bring it back to you. That's my plan. That would have been a more, oh, what what are you doing? <laughs> and he doesn't even say like, when he's going off to Isengard, he's just like, yeah, it's important for me to go to Isengard. I'll be back in Edoras, like, at some point before the changing of the moon. Like, and then as soon as Theoden is like, I want to come with you. Is it any wonder they don't trust this guy? <laughs> like, what the hell? Yeah, I mean, he makes it really hard to like him. It also, you know, when they're going to Isengard, he mentions offhand that they're going to parlay and not to fight. But he doesn't tell them how he knows that. When the mist appears, he doesn't bother to tell them that this is fine, you don't need to be worried about it, because Isengard has fallen already. This seems like a key point he could have mentioned to calm everyone the fuck down. Well, I think Uh, that, like, you also, you know, this is a traditional mythology, right? And wizards are traditionally mysterious beings. So to write him that way would have been very loyal to the way that wizards are typically depicted, except that Tolkien has chosen to also insert this level of realism into the books 
where you get you get a perspective from the other characters about what they think of him right and it's almost like if you, as long as you're going to give them real realistic relationships right as long as you're as long as you're going to step a little bit closer to the character's actual perspectives than just giving a very high level mythology don't make it this frustrating don't like don't don't make gandalf this like i don't know like yeah don't don't make him so fucking annoying like he, you're everybody else everybody everybody else has like motivations that are ascribed to them right and like gandalf sometimes does too so why like why he just all of a sudden just abdicates from the world of logic is and and nobody really reacts well i was kind of wondering if it was an intentional choice by him to be like to start presenting himself as this very mysterious but very powerful being where if he doesn't tell people what he's doing and just shows up and saves the day at random points like it makes him almost like I guess like a godlike entity right who just swoops in and saves the day and so maybe it would have been less of a miracle if he had told everyone hey I'm gonna go get some people to come back and save the day Um, So I almost like I was wondering if maybe the motivation here is that he is trying to build up this mythos around himself. Um, And maybe that's maybe the reason that this is a new thing is maybe this is something that Gandalf the White does and it's not something that Gandalf the Grey cared about or would have done. He's like, yeah, it worked for Saruman. I mean, yeah. kind of, I mean yeah. it's not it's not that new. This is not the first time that Gandalf has like failed to provide other characters with critical information, but it is happening more often. And yet at the same time, I think for me the really un the part that made it feel really unforgivable and to the point where I was like, no, this is goofy was in chapter nine, because in chapter nine, what we learn is two things in quick succession. One, that Gandalf met the hobbits in Isengard and knew they were okay and didn't fucking tell Aragorn or Legolas or Gimli, hey, the hobbits made it, we're going to meet up with them like they're alive. When these three have been running across the countryside, like so worried for their friends and you're not going to even just say like, yeah, I saw them, it's cool, like they're okay. You don't have to give us any of, like, the higher-level political stuff, but you you aren't even going to tell, like, these three guys that their friends are made it? And then, like, in the next paragraph, we get a really strong implication that Gandalf told Treebeard about the ring. Mm-hmm. Which is, like, you're going to keep all of this, like, stuff that, honestly, in the grand scheme of things, doesn't matter that much, secret, and then you're just going to casually... And look... I said this in my notes. I will say it on the pod. I would trust Treebeard with my life. I don't necessarily object to telling Treebeard that information. But I object to the fact that Gandalf is willing to tell Treebeard something that is genuinely very important to keep secret and then doesn't tell his other allies information that just shouldn't matter to disclose. I would also tell trust Treebeard with my life. I agree. And I also feel this way. Did, I I don't know. Did it like did it really make you guys feel like angry at at, uh, at Gandalf uh, at his character though? I feel for me like the reaction was like a little bit different. I think it was more just like frustration. Yeah, I, I would characterize it as more frustration too. And not I, even I don't... with him, it's just like with the way that the plot works. I'm just like this was not necessary. I didn't really 
feel anger towards Gandalf the character in the sense that it it wasn't like a I don't like you now. It was more like why are you doing this? Like what is the right. point? You know? And I think that's probably consistent with the way that I felt about a lot of the characters in this story where I'm like, what is your motivation here? Um, mm-hmm. And and it's it kind of goes back to that characterization thing that we were talking about at the beginning where I, with some of the characters, I find their motivations crystal clear and I know exactly who they are and they're written very well. And then with some of the characters, I'm like, um, <laughs> like, what, your decision making is extremely flawed and I'm not sure I understand why. Right. All of the characters that have a lot of power and authority are operating with the more human characters on a strictly need-to-know basis. I wonder if that's just consistent with, like, Tolkien's experience with leadership. I mean, it's it's consistent with my experience with leadership, for sure, especially in, like, a work <laughs> context. Like, there is mm-hmm. a lot of things that are just like, you will be told this on a need-to-know basis, or you will not be told this information that could definitely probably help you do your job. And it's like, a lot of it I find is driven by ego and just a desire to like keep people in the dark about things that will kind of maintain your own ability to exercise power over them. Right. Which is why I'm kind of like, maybe he's doing it intentionally. Yeah, I'm like, maybe it's realistic, but it's not that inspiring. And I think for me, the part that is where, yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily rage, although it does sometimes come out that way. It's but it's annoyance, right? And I don't like him. And it's not even that I mind having characters that I don't like. But I think it's hard to be in the shoes of all of these other characters who don't generally call him out on this. Nobody ever says, like, hey, you couldn't have told us that Merry and Pippin were alive? I'd be really... I mean, genuinely, if I was worried about, like, you two, if some horrible disaster had happened and you two had been kidnapped and whisked off somewhere and someone knew you were alive for at least a full day and didn't tell me, I'd be pissed at that person. Actually, that's the one part that I find a little bit understandable because there was no guarantee that Mary and Pippin would still be alive by the time they all got there. But Isengard had fallen, right? It wasn't like he came in and they were in the middle of an active battle. It was over at that point. Yeah, but we know that Merry and Pippin have a tendency to get themselves in trouble. (laughs) Yeah, but I would have still at least said, like, they were okay when I saw them last, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And they're under the care of somebody I trust. And it seems like Gandalf told Merry and Pippin about what was going on with the others because they knew about Helm's Deep. Yeah, that's true, (laughs) because he actually told them, like, hey, the others are going to be fighting this big battle, and Merry and Pippin are like, yeah, we were more worried about you guys, whether or not you'd survive. I don't know. It's it's kind of weird um, as a decision. I think, like, my two reactions are either this was intentional on Gandalf's part to be vague to like make himself seem more powerful or maybe the implication was just like everyone was just too busy (laughs) like they're you know they were preparing for battle and stuff and Gandalf didn't really have a time to cut in and be like by the way yeah um oh also a thing we found out in this chapter kind of related to that is all of this happened in the course of nine days well all of what you should specify 
basically from the time that the fellowship split up to now. Right? No, no, no. I think it was uh, yeah, from the time that Mary and Pippin got captured to now. Yeah, from the time of the kidnapping of the hobbits until now, which is after they've gone to Rohan, after Helm's Deep has happened, after the Ents have met Mary and Pippin and had their Ent moot, and after Isengard has fallen to the Ents, and uh, now they're all reuniting. This is all nine days? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tolkien's like, you want to feel unproductive? Yeah. <laughs> now I'm thinking that in addition to not knowing how distances work, he doesn't know how time works. Oh, oh boy. But also like that, like just just to reiterate something that we had that a correct take that we had in a previous a previous pod episode, the ants are not slow. No, no, they're speedy. There are they are. I think they're like the the movies totally fucked this up. Like the ants, like the ants think of of humans and other bipeds as hasty only only in like this weird kind of like meta epistemological way like the ants fucking move they they decide in the, over the course of 2 days to potentially suicidally march to Isengard and then over the course of another 2 days they lay Isengard to complete ruin <laughs> yeah it turns out they're absolute tanks <laughs> yeah they had there's can i read can i read like one of my favorite passages um from from the I think it's the second chapter. It's, so he says, as soon as Saruman had sent off all of his army to to Helm's Deep, our turn came. Treebeard put us down and went up to the gates and began hammering on the doors. <laughs> Actually, side note, it just says it began ham on the doors in my version. <laughs> Began hammering on the doors and calling for Saruman. There was no answer except arrows and stones from the walls. But arrows are no use against Ents. They can hurt them, of course, and infuriate them, like stinging flies. But an Ent can be stuck as full of orc arrows as a pincushion and take no serious harm. They cannot be poisoned, for one thing. It takes a very heavy axe stroke to wound them seriously. They don't like axes. But there would have there, but there would have have to have been a great many axemen to one Ent. A man that hacks once at an Ent never gets a chance of a second blow. But when Treebeard had got a few arrows in him, he, he began to warm up to get positively hasty, as he would say. He let out a great whom whom, and a dozen more ants came striding up. An angry ant is terrifying. Their fingers and their toes just freeze onto rock, and they tear it up like bread crust. It was like watching the work of great tree roots in a hundred years, all packed into a few moments. So good. Oh, yeah. So, like, it basically, you're just, like, watching, like, wa- watching the Ents destroy something is, like, watching a tree grow in time-lapse into, like, into the deep of, like, concrete and then just tear it up. I love this idea of the Ents being... Okay, we're not going to go into this again, but apparently the oldest living things on Middle-earth. Um, <laughs> Although, apparently, there's there's some... There's some dispute about that in the text now. Yeah, whatever. Anyway, one of the oldest things on Middle Earth. And basically just, like, having this deep power within them the whole time, but they're so good inherently as beings. Not, I wouldn't even say good, but they're so, like... I love the idea of something so powerful that, like, doesn't even realize that it's this powerful. I think the Ents are having the effect on me that the Transformers were supposed to have. <laughs> Treebeard is Optimus Prime. We will not be taking questions. Yeah, Treebot. Treebort. 
Okay, so speaking of the Ents, we also learn about some some tangential creatures that are somewhat related to the Ents called Feral Ents. Feral Ents, uh, who are called the uh, I'm I'm gonna just say this the way I think it's said. The Horns. <laughs> the Horns. <laughs> this is spelled H U O R N S. Horns. Um and basically, this these are the creatures that it's revealed that at the end of Helm's Deep are the trees that ate the orcs. Um, and basically what happened was the Ents sent them to help with this battle, uh, being like, hey, there's another battle going on there. Can you guys go take care of this? Um, and we get very, very little information about these creatures, the Huorns. Uh, we get the sense that they are a little more wild than the Ents are. Um, but apparently still take commands from them. Um, and that they're angry. And that's basically it. I think at one point Pippin suggests, or Mary suggests, that they may have once been Ents that went a little bit tree-ish, but can still be roused. There seems to be a spectrum of tree-ishness. What I thought was interesting about this is that it it is an echo of what Tolkien says about Gollum and other people that like have the ring for too long and that you kind of move on to this like this different plane eventually and it seems like the Huorns are sort of a different example of that like they're moving from the 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 plane of consciousness where elves and to some degree humans exist onto the plane where only trees exist like different I guess different like Tolkien is thinking about consciousness in some way. The reason I brought this up is um, I had this interesting thought about like why Tolkien's world building is considered so successful um, as, as compared to, you know, other fantasy worlds. And one of the things that I felt was that I think part of it has to do with the fact that he actually doesn't bother to explain a lot of this stuff fully. Um, so he introduces concepts like the horns and he gives us, you know, tidbits of information about it, but kind of akin to the way that our world works, like, you don't understand everything fully. And and I also think it gives the opportunity for the reader to flesh a lot of this out in their mind and not necessarily have the chance to poke holes at it. Um, because I've seen in a lot of other fantasy series, like if, a, if something is over-explained, like the magic system or the the types of uh, races or anything like that, like if when things are overexplained, what tends to happen is that the reader will start to find little lapses in logic or little holes in what the mechanics of that world are, and then it kind of like cr- crumbs crumbling down from there. <laughs> um, and I think you know, aside from the massive plot hole of the eagles, um, <laughs> what we see in Middle Earth is like almost the lack of explanation of some of these things leading to the inability to break it down. Yeah, there's no, I, I guess, unless we wanted to find a Huorn smoking gun, maybe the Huorns could have taken them to Mordor. <laughs> Who would have expected? Yeah, and we kind of see this in many contexts, right? Like, what are the Cribane from Dunlin? We don't really know. what. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. There's many things that are introduced that are not fully explained, and they're just introduced enough to kind of explain a thing that happened in the plot but not give you a chance to really understand the existence of it. Right, and it 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 wards off I think readers becoming a little becoming too tactical, 
I guess, in their reading of the text. The way that I saw some people read Game of Thrones when it was coming out, just obsessively trying to predict what was going to happen book after book. Mm -hmm. And like all these fan theories and like, I mean, at some point I was deeply immersed in the Song of Ice and Fire wiki, or not wiki, sorry, the, the Reddit um, in which, like, everybody put on a tinfoil hat and was like, what if? <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, I think that's generally kind of a waste of time. Yeah, I, I think it can be fun in some contexts, but I think there is a lot of attachment to those things. And in, in a lot of contexts, I think people feel that the theories they've come up with are better than what ends up happening. Right. I mean, it's interesting because we've, like, had this discussion before on the pod about fan fiction, and that's that's where that's actually what I find to be aggravating about fan fiction, despite all the things that I like about it, is this like just this kind of sometimes that well, fan fiction actually is not a really good example of this, but like just this attitude where people are like, well, you know, like here's 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 my take on what would have been like made this like a better story, or like I think I can like actually make this better. That's more a flaw in the story than in the people responding to me, Yeah, right? Like, that's an indicator. And I do honestly take that as, like, there are media properties where the reason I want to be in fandom for that media property is just that I have loved that world so much that I want to spend more time in it. And then there are media properties where I'm like, this was badly handled. And, like, it, it did disappoint, like, either its own foreshadowing or its own characters or it just, like went in a direction that made no sense um you know and and in those cases to say like yeah i do want quote unquote fix it and it's because i don't think they did a good job right like that's where that reaction comes from and i wonder if that's actually why these movies in a lot of ways are considered to be so faithful to these books in ways that other movies aren't is because there was not the sense of i need to fix this you know I feel like a lot of directors that adapt books feel a need to change the story a little bit or make it better in some way that they envision. Looking at you, DC Universe, where I I feel like maybe, I mean, I don't think this is necessarily the entirety of this, but I, I do think that this story doesn't necessarily easily lend itself to being fixed in that way. Which is interesting that you say that, because I think as we progress in reading, I am noticing more and more points where the story in the movie and the books do diverge. We talk about the movies as being a really faithful adaptation, but I think why people feel that way is they were true to the spirit of the books without always having to hew really closely to things in the books that wouldn't have adapted well, right? Like, all of this lore about the horns um, wouldn't necessarily have been super interesting when just delivered as an exposition dump. Like, it is better in the movies that we don't, uh, like, to me at least, it works in the movies that we don't get all of that information about them, that it's just, like, this thing that the Ents make happen. Shani, that kind of leads me into a segment that I would like to officially introduce now. Um, I don't know what we decided to call this segment. It's about how the books and the movies are different. Is it called They Are Different? (laughs) Working title. Working title, They Are Different. 
Okay, so basically, uh, we've been talking a lot about the differences between the these books and these movies. And actually, in these chapters, uh, I wanted to point out something that I felt was not different between them and stayed fairly faithful, which was the basically the scene in which we find Mary and Pippin and Isengard. Um, I felt like this was super faithfully adapted. Uh, it totally brought that the vibe of like the whimsy of finding two hobbits in these like massive ruins of Isengard um, and being like, wait, did they do this? And, you know, them finding the food and the weed and all of this stuff. And um, I guess like what I wanted to talk about here is not necessarily like this scene, but why do we feel like this was so successful? Do you mean like successful in terms of adaptation or successful just in terms of reaction? Maybe this goes back to a question I was asking at the beginning of the podcast, but like, why are Merry and Pippin maybe the best adapted characters? Mm, okay. Yeah, I think for me, what it is, is that they get the most multifacetedness carrying over from the books into the movies that we get them introduced as comic relief yes um but that they also both get moments of growth and moments of solemnity and we see them go through some really difficult things right we know that pippin is going to end up uh in gondor with denethor and we know that mary is going to end up riding to war with eowyn and both of those experiences are very harrowing for them, right? Like you and they don't they don't serve as comic relief in either of those settings. So compared to a character like Gimli where all that he gets from books to movies he loses all of his like nobility and all of the the moments of sort of more serious reflection or where he gets to actually do something meaningful that gets lost but Merry and Pippin get to keep those moments and the comic relief. Yeah, and Merry and Pippin are not, they don't belong to kind of like the, the crew of noble people, right? Or like authoritative characters. And so it sort of doesn't, them becoming more fleshed out as characters doesn't really do anything to the story itself. Yeah, I think that's something that I hadn't really been able to fully articulate in my mind before now. Thank you, Ashani, for, for phrasing it that way. But yeah, I think the reason that we get so annoyed, well, we have been so annoyed about Gimli kind of being relegated to comic relief in the movies, but he doesn't have a character arc that's built into the story, right? There's nothing for the plot to do that's going to carry him through a compelling character arc. Whereas Merry and Pippin, unless you're going to leave out these pretty critical moments of the story, it's built into the story that they grow. Yeah, so, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, I like that. Okay. We're going with it. Uh, let's do a little quick fire. Uh, yeah, I, I'd like to go first. Um, so I just wanted to talk about the reason that the Ents decide to uh, have their bit of fun with the River Eisen. So they they dam it up. Um, in the movies, the, the Ents release a dam that Saruman has built up for the purposes of industry. In the books, in these chapters, what happens is that the ants create a dam by damming up all of the different tributaries of the Aizen, right? They put it into one big dam, and then they release its force into the basin of Isengard. I would like to just say that when you first said the river Aizen, I heard it as Verizon. So- <laughs> Me too. <laughs> 
Yeah. So when the Ents jam up Verizon, um, so what's the what's the reason that they do that? Like they did it so that they could like they could flood Saruman's armories and make them unusable. Was it like a war of attrition kind of thing? So that's definitely the sense I get from the movie scene, where like well, and they talk the about entire... like the fumes, right? But yeah, that was the impression I got from the books too. Is like there's sort of labs and armories and all sorts of other stuff going on underground, and this is a relatively low risk way to a wash away all those chemicals that were in fact causing the ants harm you know there's like liquid fire and stuff that's hurt capable of hurting them um so that sort of washes away all the chemicals dilutes all of those and it more or less means that once the ants leave no one else can come back and just pick right up where saruman left off because you have to imagine that the workshops have now been damaged the equipment has been washed away but it doesn't actually cause significant harm to the land itself to do that right does turn the river eyes into into kind of like cleveland river circa 1970 though (laughs) it is also (laughs) it could be their last pitch to get the end wives back they're like look at this yo you like agriculture (laughs) Wanda, do you want to do a second one if you're not happy with that? Well, yeah, <laughs> thank you. The, one th- the thing that I actually wanted to talk about for my quick fire was that the this chapter, like, this chapter ends with, or these chapters end with us learning a little bit about what Saruman has done underneath the earth, right? He's created underneath Isengard, which used to be lush and full of farms and forests, um, basically used to be this, like, beautiful Netherlands-esque, you know, miracle of agriculture he has created armories and smithies and storerooms basically things for for military life and it's interesting because at the beginning of these two chapters you get some uh, kind of a this beautiful poetic parallel to that which is Gimli telling Legolas about the caves that he had an opportunity to see behind Helm's Deep so these caves that everybody was fleeing into during the battle Gimli was like, oh my god, like, these were the most beautiful caves, probably the most beautiful place I've ever seen, and, like, I want to go back here with you, Legolas, my wife, when this whole thing is over. My aunt-wife. My (laughs) aunt-wife. And Legolas was like, well, you know, it's better if, it's better if you you don't really, like, go back there, because you guys, you dwarves would just ruin it, and Gimli was like, no, you misunderstand me, like, I don't think dwarves would ever actually do anything to these caves, like, they're so beautiful, you wouldn't want to touch them. And... I think that's, it was interesting and kind of, yeah, again, like, poetic that that these chapters were bookended by these two descriptions of, like, a thing that you can do with nature and with your surroundings. And, yeah. Do you think Gimli is right in saying that the dwarves wouldn't have touched the caves, though? Well, I think we have to trust him as, like, a reasonable emissary of, of that civilization, right? Yeah, I don't know. I just think about, like, what, not what happened with Moria, but, like, they definitely didn't leave it alone. But I think that Gimli's saying here that, like, not all caves are created equal, right? It is worth noting that Gimli, after the storyline, ends up becoming the king of these caves, the Glittering Caves. Oh, really? Good to know. (laughs) (laughs) He loved them that much. It's where he went to uh, put his little Galadriel hair stone crystal. (laughs) 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, so like, so I guess, so maybe it's, I mean. I don't know if that means that, like, he, I don't know that he did anything to the caves. It just, he was gifted those lands. Right. Yeah. By Theoden? Um, by Aragorn, I think. Ah, uh, Aragorn. Sticking his nose where it don't belong. <laughs> Giving again. away land yet again that does not belong to him. All right, I have, I have two quick things. Um, the first is really quick. It's just something logistical I want to point out. Uh, Gimli claims to have won the little friendly competition between Legolas and him uh, of how many orcs they could defeat. I just want to point out that this is logistically impossible when one of them is using an axe and the other one is using a bow and arrows. Well, but Legolas kept running out of arrows. Yeah, yeah, but maybe Legolas then. stopped after the first 20 minutes and then was just hanging out. Okay, <laughs> I don't think he was just hanging out. <laughs> but Legolas, first of all, doesn't only have arrows. He has other weapons that he uses when he runs out of arrows while he's retrieving his arrows. It just logistically uh, makes no sense. That is movie canon only. There is no evidence in the book that Legolas does anything other than use a bow. Okay, well, he would he would be dead if he didn't do anything <laughs> other than use a bow. <laughs> Yeah, he was just he was just poisoning people after that. <laughs> anyway, I just want to point out that that's impossible. Uh, the real thing I wanted to say, though, was that we get some interesting um, notes here that are laying the grounds for the ultimate return of Saruman in the Shire. Um, so we get basically this glimpse of the pipe weed that Marianne Pippin find in Isengard, and it turns out to be Longbottom Leaf, which is a pipe weed that comes from the Shire. And Mary and Pippin don't think too hard about this. They're like, yes, we found Longbottom Leaf. Sweet. Um, but we do get this this quote from Aragorn at the end um, where he says, basically, he points out that the leaf from the South Farthing is in Isengard. And the more he, I consider it, the more curious I find it. Um, I have never been in Isengard, but I have journeyed in this land, and I know well the empty countries that lie between Rohan and the Shire. Neither goods nor folk have passed that way for many a long year, not openly. Saruman had secret dealings with someone in the Shire, I guess. Worm tongues may be found in other houses than King Theoden's. So... Like there's other worm tongues. Yeah. So um, this is really laying the ground for the fact that all is not well in the Shire right now. Um, and that there is some relationship that is pre-existing between Saruman and the Shire that is 100% going to come back, as we know. Yeah, another worm tongue. It's like Agent Smith. There's like a lot of them. It's also interesting because uh, the scouring of the Shire is deliberately left out of the movies, but the scene of Merry and Pippin discovering Longbottom Leaf is deliberately kept in. Just a little Easter egg. Okay, well, since everybody else had two quick fire things, I am also going to have two quick fire things. One of them will be short. So the short one is that I really liked the description of Isengard. I thought that was really nice. But what I especially liked about it was the little, just couple of sentences at the end where Tolkien makes sure that we know, like, yes, as sort of horrible and corrupted as Isengard seems, we want you to know that this is a really pale imitation of the tower in Mordor. And Saruman is sitting here, like, being so proud of this thing that he's created. And this whole time, like, the tower in Barad-dûr is looking at it going, like, you can't touch me. Um, Which I just, that really worked for me as a little bit of description and as a way to sort of put Saruman 
in his place as a mid-tier boss fight. Um, yeah, he says Sar- Sauron laughs at flattery. Yes, it was just, it really, it worked. Uh, I thought that was really nicely done. My slightly longer or potentially longer um, quick fire thing is that it, this chapter made, or chapter nine rather, made me think about when these big like narrative exposition dumps in dialogue work for me and when they don't work for me. And I think what I've been thinking about is like exposition works when we have gotten primed by other things that have happened in the story thus far to make us want to know the answers to the information that we're getting, which I mentioned briefly earlier in the pod. Um, But it was something that came up in a video essay I was watching this week, and I wish I remembered what the essay was. But it's really critical, like, because there have been other times where we've been told, like, oh, yeah, this is what this character was doing, and this is, like, all this stuff that happened. And I'm thinking about, like, Gandalf telling us about going to Saruman and then getting sort of captured and then having to escape but we didn't have really any sort of priming to want to know that information until Gandalf is like here's the problem I encountered and how I solved it and the difference here was like we knew there was a problem we had enough information to start making guesses about how it was resolved and then we actually got that information and that just felt so much more satisfying this time um And I like that, and I like being able to sort of think about the difference in what, on a technical level, made that work for me. Because I think I got the impression for you, too, as well, that, like, that worked for you in Chapter 9. Yeah, I I saw this in your notes, and it really resonated with me because I was trying to figure out, like, why... Uh, usually I don't like massive expository dumps of information. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was, like, trying to figure out why this one was good. And I think you're right in the sense that, like... it. Reminded me of when you're reading a book that's kind of like a mystery style and you get a lot of hints dropped throughout the entire story about things that are going to be relevant, but you don't know exactly what is. And it's always incredibly satisfying to get to the end and like find out how they all piece together. And it kind of reminded me of that similar vibe where you you get uh, hints towards the things that happen dropped throughout the previous like four or five chapters, and then you finally get that payoff of here's how it all fit together. Thanks for listening to One Does Not Simply. This episode was edited by Navia. You can find us on Twitter at ODNSPod and Tumblr at One Does Not Simply Pod. Special thanks to Andrew, Sneha, and all of our listeners for joining us on this journey. If you like what you hear, give us a rating or a review on whatever platform you listen to. I'm going to fucking edit out my incorrect damning thing, by the way. No, no, no. Don't edit it out. I think it, like, speaks to... (laughs) I'm just saying fucking wrong. (laughs) You can't edit it out just because you're wrong.